sort of awed by how God so often orchestrates worship services, <laughs> how he brings things together that we did not necessarily intentionally plan. You know, so this morning the song leader led the songs he did. There was a children's meeting. There was a devotional. I'm called to preach the word. And I saw some themes that just flowed through all of that. To me, that is an indication that the Spirit of God is alive and well. <laughs> that the Spirit of God is moving in our midst as brothers and sisters. As we are, as we are committing ourselves to Him, as we are taking our responsibilities seriously, God works those things together and orchestrates something that is like a package that is powerful, that is a blessing. And like I said, I'm, I'm continually awed by that. I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 for a text this morning. So one of our first songs we sang this morning was number 12. We praise thee, O God, our Redeemer. Verse 2 reads this way, We worship thee, God, of our fathers, we bless thee. Through life's storm and tempest, our guide hast thou been. When perils o'ertake us, escape thou wilt make us. And with thy help, O Lord, our battles we win. And then the, the third line of the third verse, Thy strong arm will guide us, our God is beside us. <laughs> Some beautiful themes that connect perfectly to this story from Second Chronicles chapter 20. It is... It is really through the power of God that we can win any battles. The battles of life. So as we go through life, we are all well aware that we face challenges. This is a spiritual battle. If you are a Christian, if you have name the name of Christ, if your desire is to live for Him, then you understand, at least to a certain degree, what a battle is about. You face battles. The devil will do all he can to, to sidetrack you, to distract you, to make you discouraged, to make you feel like giving up. It's a battle. The Christian life takes perseverance. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose. And so we face big things in our lives. And one of the things that comes to our mind often as human beings is, what will I ever do? We're facing something that looks big. We're facing something that looks scary. And we say, now what do I do? Or perhaps in relation to that, someone will come to you and say, 
So what do you plan to do about that? <laughs> Does that sound familiar? What do you plan to do about that? I think some of those thoughts were going through the minds of the people in this story many years ago. Now what are we supposed to do? And there was probably some talk among themselves, what are we going to do about this? Oh, King Jehoshaphat, what do you plan to do about all this? Well, in verse 12, this is what King Jehoshaphat said. We don't know what to do. <laughs> we don't have a clue what to do. But Lord, our eyes are on you. Now, is that doing something? It certainly is. That's doing more than you could ever do by physical action. That's doing more than you could ever do just with sheer willpower. He said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's one of the challenges for this morning. As we look at this story this morning, I want us to learn some lessons about spiritual battle that can help prepare us for the challenges and for the battles that we face today. We will read uh, verses 1 through 30. You follow along. This is the story. But it's a, it's a long story. And there's so much to cover, we won't look at it all this morning. I plan to look at part of it this morning, and we'll look at another, the last part of it. We'll save the best for last, okay? And we'll save that for a few weeks down the road. But we will look at at least verses 1 through 17 this morning. But for sake of catching the whole, we will... At least read through verse 30. Follow along. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask them of the Lord, I'm sorry, to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If, when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold, the children of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not, behold, I say, how they reward us. 
to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the children of the Korathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness. As they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every one helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled themselves in the valley of Berakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the same place was called the valley of Berakah, Unto this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go again to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies, and they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. For his God gave him rest round about. Wow. What a powerful story. I've entitled this message, The Battle is the Lord's. The Battle is the Lord's. Now, as we begin chapter 20 here, 
we read this phrase, and it came to pass after this also. So we're thinking back to what happened right before this. In other words, this is building on top of what had just happened. And I want to note that. I want to note what just happened in, verse, in, in chapter 19. We have Jehoshaphat returning safely from battle. However, his, counter, his counterpart did not return safely from battle. Jehoshaphat had perhaps a weakness, you could say, in aligning himself with those who did not honor God. One of those was Ahab. We all know from our study of the Bible that Ahab did not fear God. Well, Jehoshaphat had aligned himself. You could say joined hands in some ways with King Ahab. They had went to battle. Ahab, as you remember, had tried to disguise himself. But it says that... <laughs> a, a, um, a bow shooter, an archer, <laughs> an archer, I should know that, shot at random just shot an arrow at random and hit Ahab. Now, do you think that was coincidence? I say, no, it wasn't coincidence. But hit Ahab, and he ended up dying because of that. So Ahab did not return. Jehoshaphat returned safely. And upon returning from battle, as he returned, he was met by this man, Jehu, who scolded him. He admonished him. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing helping people who are against God. But along with those words of admonition, he also gave words of encouragement. He said, you are doing some things right, though. He encouraged him. Well, as it goes, those words of encouragement, and perhaps the words of admonition as well, spurred Jehoshaphat to action. And we read in chapter 19 that, that he then helped turn the hearts of the people back to God. Turning the hearts of Judah back to God. It was a time of revival, a time of renewal. And then he appointed judges uh, to govern the people. And he commanded the judges to judge in the fear of the Lord. Note verse 9 of chapter 19. He charged them saying, thus shall ye do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a perfect heart. And then verse 11 ends this way. He said, deal courageously and the Lord shall be with you. And so I say all that to say that the spiritual climate was just right for facing the unknown battle right around the corner. Okay? The spiritual climate was right for facing the unknown battle right around the corner. And let me just say for us as well, staying current, staying up to date in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is vital to experiencing victory in our battles that we faced Amen. just around the corner. Because the battles will come. There will be another battle for each one of us. It may be later today. It may be tomorrow. Sometimes it seems like Mondays are good days for battles. <laughs> it may be later this week. But we're going to face more battles. If we're faithful, we're going to face battles. And I say staying current, staying up to date in your relationship with Jesus Christ is vital for experiencing victory. In fact, when you are faithfully, daily surrendering your life to Him, you can expect victory. 
in the next battle. You can expect it. And that's not being proud or haughty. That's simply believing the word of God and living in faith. Believing the promises of God. Now, so that's, that's the, the context that this story comes in. And so once again, we'd like to look down uh, through this story and learn some lessons about spiritual battle that can prepare us for the challenges that we face today. And so in the, in the verse, verses 1 through 17, we just want to notice these four points. We're going to look at the problem. We're going to look at the proclamation. We're going to look at the prayer and then the prophecy. We'll note those four points this morning. First of all, there was a problem. There was a problem. The problem was that three enemy nations were coming against Judah. And this was no small deal. But let's notice who they were. It says it was the Moabites, it was the Ammonites, and it was those from Mount Seir. That's who was coming. Now, if you remember, the Moabites and the Ammonites were a product of the immoral relationship that Lot's daughters had with their father. And the Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of that. And they seemed to be a thorn in the side of God's people for years and years and years. Causing them to sin. Tempting them. Drawing them away from God. Fighting them. Just being a pain. But it goes back to an immoral relationship. So we have this army coming against the children of Judah. The nation of Judah here. That's who they were. Let's notice how many they were. Now in verse 2 it says... It's a great multitude. NIV says, a vast army. And in fact, in verse 12, we also read, Jehoshaphat said, we have no might against this great company that's coming against us. In other words, he was saying, we are greatly outnumbered. This will never work. It's obvious. If you look at the numbers, mathematically, this will never work. We're done. We're outnumbered. It's a vast army. And look at who we are. And notice where they were. As we think of the enemy, we think of the problem. It says that they are coming from the other side of the Dead Sea. It doesn't say that right here, but that is, in essence, literally what it is saying. Here's a vast army that's coming from far away. They're coming from the other side of the Dead Sea. And he's going on to say, this messenger that is telling Jehoshaphat is saying, they're getting close. <laughs> they, they've come from far away and they're almost here. Now, if that wouldn't create panic, I don't know what would. That's scary. That's scary. That's the problem. Let's note then the proclamation. In verse 2, actually verse 3 it is, begins by saying that the king was scared. The king was scared. And we would say we're well, rightly so. 
I mean, that's a natural response. We know what it is to be scared. We know what it is to face something huge, something that looks impossible, and it scares us. That's sort of the first thing that comes into our, our gut or leaps up in our chest. It scares us. In fact, that fear is something that often immobilizes people. And that's sort of where they sink into fear. But I want you to note the influential power of a leader, and specifically the influential power of a godly leader as we find in King Jehoshaphat. So what did Jehoshaphat do? I see that his fear drove him to God. He could have done a number of things. He could have cried and thrown a fit and he could have he could have, have went and, and, and spoke a lot of things that were negative, saying, oh, this is terrible. Oh, we don't know how we're going to do this. Oh, my. And, and, and made the people just lose heart completely. He could have ran. He could have fled. But what did he do? I see that his fear drove him to God. He, first of all, sought God personally. It says that he set himself to seek the Lord. He set the example by setting himself to seek the Lord. It's a picture of resolve. That, that phrase there, he set himself, means that he resolved to do it. It was a determination. I resolved to seek the Lord. Against all odds, this is what I'm going to do. Once again, he could have chosen to do many things. But in the face of an impossible situation, Jehoshaphat chose to seek the face of God. He chose to trust God. And then he rallied the people to do the same. We read there in verse 3 that he proclaimed a fast for the whole nation of Judah. And I want you to notice how that changed the atmosphere. How that changed the perspective of the whole nation of Judah. You see, what started out with fear ended with faith. And in between was this fasting. I say it again. I want you all to catch this. This is very important. It's a powerful example for us today as we face the spiritual battles in our lives. What started out with fear ended with faith. And in the middle was fasting and praying. And so, fear, fast, and faith. I want you all to remember them. That's a spiritual strategy for facing spiritual battles today. I want to challenge you to make fasting a normal part of your Christian experience. I don't know if you fast much or not. I've never done a, a long fast, but I've fasted quite regularly for years. Fasting, along with prayer, I believe, is a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare that God honors. That God honors. I have experienced that many times in my personal life. But it, it helps to weed out the many distractions. It helps us to clearly focus on the heart of the matter. 
It helps us to align ourselves with God's will. And in this story, I notice that the call to fasting brought the people together. It brought them together. But once again, it was the influence of a godly leader as he assessed the situation, saw the magnitude of the situation, he sought God personally, he then called on the people to join him in fasting, the people came together. And let's note now the prayer. The prayer, and that goes for a few verses here. But I say, what a prayer meeting that was. What a prayer meeting that was. I want you to notice the picture or the example, you could say, of togetherness that we see in this, in this story. Look at verse 4. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now look at verse 13. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. You see that picture of togetherness? It says that everyone came. Verse 3 says, uh, verse 4 actually, verse 4 says, they came, people came from every town in Judah. They came from everywhere. And, and then there in verse 13, it says that all Judah stood before the Lord. It implies that everyone was there. They all came. It was all important. They all stood together on this. It wasn't just a men's prayer breakfast. It wasn't just a men's meeting. It wasn't even a special called session of conference. No. It was more than that. It was a family affair. And as I, as I picture that, there's something touching about that. As you picture everyone standing there and how it mentions the little children, the little ones, the men, the wives, the whole family, they all came. God was touched by that. God blessed that. But in the face of this impossible situation, <laughs> everyone was standing together in more than one way. Everyone was standing together in spirit and in body. Notice, it says there in verse 5 that Jehoshaphat stood in the front. There was the king, there was the leader. Jehoshaphat stood there. It says in verse 13 that all the families, all Judah stood there. Later in this story, in verse 17, we have the, the encouragement to stand ye still. Different times, there's this thing of standing. The people were standing, standing together, not only physically, but in spirit as well. I think the fact that everyone was physically standing speaks of anticipation. It speaks of readiness. It shows the heart of the people. Their physical stance reflected their inner attitude, their inner disposition. They were ready. They were waiting. God, what will you do? There was that spirit that permeated this large audience. You see, they didn't know what to do, but they had faith that God did. They believed God. They trusted Him. 
Their focus was not on their problem. But as we see clearly in the end of verse 12, their focus was on the answer. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. Implying that they believed God would move. And they were standing there in anticipation. Now let's just briefly look at the content of their prayer. In verse 6, I note that their attitude was one of trust in God's power and ability. They trusted that God was strong enough, that God was powerful enough to take care of this problem. They were confident that He could handle it. In verse 7, they remembered God's faithfulness in the past. They said, God, aren't you the one that drove our enemies out before? Aren't you that one? They reflected on God's faithfulness in dealing with the problems of the past. Verse 8, or 9 actually, verse 9 They reminded God of His promises to His people. Have you ever done that? Have you ever reminded God of what He has promised? We see that different times in Scripture. And here we see it again. God, you remember what you said. You remember you said that if there's problems and we turn to you, that you're going to hear us and that you're going to help us. Now, do you think God needs reminded... No, certainly not. God doesn't need reminding at all. God remembered very well. But yet as human beings, we do that sometimes to to remind ourselves. It's a means of giving us confidence. I remember that God said this. And so remember, God, that you said that? Well, they're they're reminding God of His promises. That if they turn to God in times of hardship... In times when things look impossible, that God would hear and God would help. And then in verse 12, they acknowledged their insufficiency. They acknowledged their insufficiency. And that is so key. That is so key in helping us find victory in the battles that we face. As long as you go into the battles uh, of life with an attitude of, you know, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. Or as long as you go into the battles of life with the attitude of, like a plaque that I've seen in the past, that Jesus is my (laughs) co-pilot. No. As long as you go into life with that attitude, you might as well buckle your seatbelt and prepare to crash. It doesn't work that way. But they showed very clearly that they had nothing. They acknowledged their insufficiency. We have no might against this great company. We don't know what to do. We don't have what it takes. We need help. We're looking to you. That's a proper perspective, and that is vital to claiming victory in the spiritual battles we face. And so, that's the content of their prayer. And I say it's a, great, it's a great structure for our prayers even today. As we think of what has God, God has done in the past, 
If we consider God as how great He is, how powerful He is, remember what He's done in the past. Thinking of His promises, acknowledging our insufficiency and our need of Him. It's a beautiful structure for our prayers today. Now let's note the prophecy. Begins in verse 14. We have a spirit-filled man who delivered God's message of encouragement, of strength, of victory. And by the way, that is the message that God brings to us as believers. God brings messages of life. God brings messages that lift us up. God encourages us. It is through the Spirit of God that we find the strength to keep keeping on. Life-giving messages. And so here we have that life-giving message coming through a Spirit-filled man. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and then he encouraged the people. He rallied the people with his encouragement. And then he concluded by giving the promise of God's presence. But I want to stop here for a bit and just take a little time to ponder what he said. In verses 15 and verse 17. He said, The battle is not yours, people, but it's the Lord's. Now, as I play that little story in my mind, I can, I can just faintly hear a few snickers, a few snorts from the less spiritual ones in the crowd. Some <laughs> nice, kind of that. That response seems like there's always a few of those. This is not your battle. This is the Lord's battle. And some of them were thinking, what does he mean by that? It is very much our battle. I mean, if we don't do anything, we're dead. How often do I respond like that? He said, the battle is not yours but God's. And I call to remembrance a similar statement made by little David when he was facing Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. There he stood before big Goliath, little David, big Goliath. And he was just getting ready to do business there. And we read in verse 47, this is what David said. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. That should have really brought fear to Goliath's heart. I tell you, if the battle is the Lord's, there ain't nothing for us to worry about. Nothing. Doesn't that bring relief to you? Doesn't that bring courage to your heart? Hey, you can always feel that burden just kind of roll off of you. This is not my battle to fight. This is the Lord's battle. This, this agenda is really against the Lord, not me. You've heard it said before, you know, when someone has sort of harsh news to bring or admonition, they'll say, hey, look, don't get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. Well, it's kind of that same drift here. The battle is the Lord's. Zechariah 4, verse 6, we read, Not by might, 
nor by power, but, but, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's basically what we're talking about here. There is nothing in our own physical strength, <laughs> there is nothing that in and of ourselves that we can do when it comes, really, to spiritual victory. Now, don't run with that. We'll be back in a moment. But it's nothing in and of ourselves. The power to claim spiritual victory comes through the Spirit of God, through the power of God working through us. But the Spirit-filled man here in 2 Chronicles 20 said, this is not your battle, this is God's battle. And so while there were those who were less spiritual in that audience that probably snickered a bit, cleared their throats, coughed a little bit in their sleeve, for the most of the people, the ones who were sincere in their walk with God, it probably brought tears of joy to their eyes. I can just, I can just see that as I replay a story sort of in my mind. He also went on to say, Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Now there were certainly battles that they had physically fought in. He said, you're not going to need to fight in this one. And then he goes on to say, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. So here, here the spirit-filled man was saying, these are th some things that you're not going to have to do. Okay? You're not going to have to do these things. He didn't say it in these exact words, but he was certainly implying that God was going to fight this battle for them. In fact, in the end of our story, in the end of verse 29, we read that the fear of God was in all the kingdoms, when they had heard that the Lord fought, the Lord fought <laughs> against the enemies of Israel. They didn't say, boy, did you see those guys in Judah? I tell you, that was amazing. No, they said they got scared when they saw that the Lord had fought. They associated that victory directly with the power of God. Now, this thing of the Lord fighting for the people shouldn't have been a new concept to the people, but instead a good reminder. Because the truth is, we find this, this different times all through the Old Testament, at least in the first number of books of the Old Testament, we find this idea and this wording that God was fighting for His people. God promised different times, I'm fighting for you, and you've won this, you've come to this place in life because I fought for you. Now, just turn back quickly to Exodus 14, and this is the story where the children of Israel were stuck. They had come out of Egypt. They were getting ready to cross the Red Sea. But at this point, they didn't know that they were going to cross the Red Sea. They didn't know what they were going to do either. But here they were stuck. Pharaoh and his army was fast advancing, coming up behind them. And here the Red Sea was out in front of them. And what did they start doing? They started complaining. Why did you get us out of Egypt, Moses? What a mess we're in now. We'd rather have died in Egypt, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so there they are. What did Moses say to the people in verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 14? Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still. It's a similar wording 
that we have in 2 Chronicles 20. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. The Lord will fight for you, said Moses. In essence, he was saying, you just need to stand still. You just need to be still. Let God do what God wants to do. Leave it up to God. You see, God had led the Israelites into a position in which they were not able to save themselves. Why would God do that? That's mean. Isn't that mean? God put the Israelites in a bad spot. That's our human way of looking at it sometimes. But he put themselves in a position in which they were not able to save themselves. All they could do was depend upon God for deliverance. That's all they had left to do. There was nothing else to do. How badly they wanted boats, I'm sure. But there were no boats around. Someone has said that when all you have left is God you realize for the first time that God is all you need. When all you have left is God, you realize for the first time that God is all you need. And that was true in this story. It seems that God just wants to get us to the place of total dependence upon him plus nothing. (laughs) Plus nothing else. Total dependence upon him plus nothing. And so he'll keep whittling away at us, bringing things into our lives, chiseling away at us, rounding off this sharp edge, working on us. He's still working on me, (laughs) like the little children's song says, to make me what I ought to be. But then as we go through Scripture, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read at least three times that God promised the people, he said, I'm going to fight for you. As you go on this journey, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for you. Three different times. And then as we get into the book of Joshua, we read that the children of Israel, they conquered, and the children of Israel got where they were. They claimed the promised land, not because of who they were, not because of some great thing they did, but it says because God fought for them. God fought for them. In fact, in Joshua 23, verse 3, we have uh, Joshua's farewell speech. It says he's old. He's getting ready to pass off the scene. And Joshua reminded the people, you people better remember that you are who you are. You are where you are, where you are. You have what you have because God fought for you. God fought for you. That's a good thing for us to keep in mind in our own personal lives. It's all about God. It's really not about us at all. Turn to Psalm 44 for a little perspective here. Psalm 44. And here we have a perspective of humble confidence in God. And the writer here is reflecting back to what God had done in the past. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us. 
what work thou didst in their days, in the times of old, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them. In other words, he's saying, you drove out the heathen, but you planted your people. How thou didst, how thou didst afflict the people and cast them out, for they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. In other words, the people got what they got, God, because you love them. It's because of what you've done for them. Because you loved your people so much. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee we will push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Selah. Now that's a perspective of humble confidence in God. There's few things that will make me feel as sort of sick inside as hearing someone, perhaps an older person, talk about all their past successes and all the things they've done in life and, and how great they've done in business and everything that they've done in story after story and give no acknowledgement to God. I did this. I did that. We did this. Boy, we realized that was a good decision we made then. And this and this and this. Never giving God the glory. It brings about a sickening feeling. See, I am who I am. I am where I am. I have what I have because of God and God alone. That's it. That's the foundation of it all. And you remember the story of Herod, King Herod, that we read in Acts. God, God gave Herod some wonderful talents. It says he was quite a speaker. But because he failed to give God glory, he died a very gruesome type of death. It says that worms ate him. I tell you, that would be a bad way to go. But it says, because he failed to give God glory. Well, back in our text, as we begin to wrap this up here this morning, I see that this spirit-filled man concludes his prophecy with these words. We find them in the end of verse 17. He said, for the Lord will be with you. For the Lord will be with you. And the same promise is true for us today. Look, don't think for a moment that you are fighting your battles alone. God takes our battles personally. You could put it that way. God takes our battles personally. And if you're not winning, it's not because he doesn't care. It's probably because you're trying to help him. God doesn't need your help. God doesn't want your help. In other words, when we try to help God, I believe God lets us lose a few to help us learn that it's about God, not about us. God simply wants our obedience. God wants our trust. And as the scripture says, 
We need to stand still and let him fight the battles for us. Notice what the people were told to do. (laughs) We noticed earlier what the spirit-filled man said, you're not going to have to do. But there were some things that they're going to have to do. And we see it's set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. If you're writing in your notes, you could put, I like words that are kind of similar. Set, stand, and see. Set, stand, and see. In other words, people, you better get ready. This is going to be amazing. You have no idea what's getting ready to happen. I want you to get ready. Set yourselves. Take your positions. All right? Get ready to see what an awesome God can do. And then he says, stand still. Stand still. Other translations say, stand firm. Stand firm. The Hebrew literally means, make yourself stand. In other words, don't lose heart. Don't let your heart sink within you. Don't stumble in unbelief. But with a quiet mind, I want you to look to God. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord with you. So standing still is more a frame of mind than it is a posture of our body. It's an attitude. Stand ye still. Stand ye still and see the salvation of God. Psalm 27 verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Dear people, waiting and being still are not a picture of indecision. It's not a picture of disobedience. It's not a picture of unbelief. Instead, it's an attitude of quiet confidence and trust in our Almighty God, waiting on the Lord, being still and considering who He is. And so our Our victory in spiritual warfare depends upon God. The battle is His. Our one responsibility is to stay obediently in His will. And dear people, when we do that, our victory is assured. Why? Because God is fighting for us. God is fighting for us. There's a little children's song that came to my mind as I was studying for this. Some time ago, it was quite some time ago, Colin was walking around the house singing this song. I know the Lord can make a way for me. He's walking around the house singing that. And we don't sing that at home. We we didn't really know that song. And, And I said, Colin, like, where did you learn that song? He said, well, I learned it in Sunday school. Really? I said, who, who taught you that song? Mary Lou. Mary Lou taught me that song. Mary Lou, bless your heart. That just, that just touched my spirit. That is, that is the power of Sunday school, and I can't wait till we can have Sunday school again. But, but each one of you in, in our congregation have, have a part to play in 
influencing our children, our little ones. But that song, the words of that song, really are the testimony of King Jehoshaphat and the people. In fact, he ended chapter 19 by saying, Deal courageously and the Lord shall be with the good. And then we have chapter 20. And the little song says, I know the Lord will make a way for me. If I live a holy life, shun the wrong and do the right, I know the Lord will make a way for me. There's confidence in that. We can believe God. Live according to God. Seek the Lord. Put your relationship with Him first place. And you can move ahead and know that the Lord will make a way for you. God will fight your battles for you. So, let us bow our heads for prayer. And then we'll sing that little song. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you so much again for your word. What a blessing it is to us this morning. What a challenge it brings to our lives as we consider our need to just stand still, to trust you, to have a quiet confidence in you. Oh, Father, so often we face challenges, we face battles, things in our lives that look so huge, look impossible, and yeah, we don't know what to do. Too many times we try to do too many things and forget that we simply need to submit ourselves to you and let you fight the battle. Father, help us to wait on you. Help us to be still and know that you are God. Help us, Father, to spend more time in praying and less in doing, as it were. So, Father, we need your strength. We need to be revived. We need to be renewed And Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would give us victories in our lives. Father, we pray that you would be glorified through our lives. And as we have heard from your word this morning, help us now to put that to practice as we go into this, this coming week. And no doubt there are some unknown battles ahead of us. Help us, Father, to give those battles to you and to trust you in all of it and to live in obedience to your will. We pray your blessing on this gathering as we part from here. Uh, May you be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's sing that little song together uh, as I walk back to my seat. I know the Lord will make a way for me. I know the Lord will make a way for me.